You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Bible in English. Is it worth dying for? Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org. The history of the Bible is outlined in this episode along with its various translations. However, the Catholic Church set conditions upon the Bible. They permitted it to be distributed only in Latin. The arrival of the printing machine enabled the Bible to be printed in local languages and widely distributed. The church would not permit this because it affected their control over people. Having the Bible in our language, and I don't know what was announced, but I've changed it from what it was originally. Is it worth dying for? I want to take you to a place on the 26th of November in 2013 in America, in Manhattan's east side. It was raining. It had a wind chill near freezing. It was hardly a night that would attract people to go out, particularly to an auction. Yet Sotheby's uh, in New York was teeming with with buyers. And the reason for that was that there was, as you can see on the screen there, if you can make it out, there was one of two copies of a book called the Bay Psalms book. It was a book that... uh, was owned by the Old South Church in Boston. Well, they owned two of them, and they, were, they put one up for auction. Now, this book was translated from the Hebrew by Puritan settlers and then typeset, and then in 1640 was printed, 17,000 copies, oh, sorry, 1,700 copies. It's the first printed book in British North America, just 20 years after the the Mayflower had landed. Only 11 copies of this book survived. Now, after two and a half minutes, there was an opening bid of $6 million. there was this frenzied action on the auction floor and on the phones, and it very quickly reached $12 million. The the final price was $14.165 million. Now, this is the record for the most expensive printed book ever sold at auction. It took the record from the the previous book, which was also an American book, obviously about something of great importance to the the spending public. It was an enormous 11,500. That was back in 2010. It was a book by John James uh, Audubon's The Birds of America, clearly something of tremendous value at 11.15 million. Imagine how much the Gutenberg Bible would cost at an auction. I mean, that's, that's the first book that was ever printed in the world. And 
that's using uh, movable type. Uh, they used to have hand-printed books and then handwritten books. But this is using movable type. That's 180 years earlier than the Bay Psalms book. Now, estimates are that each page of the Gutenberg Bible is worth more than $100,000. Actually, the Gutenberg Bible is considered to be so valuable, they're selling them off pages at a time. In 2015, Sotheby's put up a, 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 an auction for eight pages. They're from the Book of Esther. And it also included the, the prologue to the Book of Job. Now, this Gutenberg Bible was written, was typed up in, in Latin. So what value would it be to most people in the world today? It was estimated that the value would be between 500 and 700,000 for eight pages. Do you know how much it sold for? $970,000 for eight pages. That's four leaves from a book that you can't even, most people can't even read. Now, why would anyone buy such a book or even such pages? The... The auction record, actually, for any book, that includes the hand-printed and hand-written uh, books that have ever been produced in the world, is Leonardo da Vinci's Codex Hammer. It sold for $30.8 million. See, it's handwritten, isn't it? It's a book by Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, I mean, who wouldn't want that? Who would pay for $30.8 million for something like that? Well, Bill Gates did. And, of course, it would be of great value to him. Why? Why would it be of value to him? Did he get some kind of inspiration from it? I know that he put it out as... as uh, screensavers at one stage. Why would you spend so much money on something so ancient, particularly the Bible? Because they're old? Because they're written in Latin? You see, these people bought these items so that they owned something valuable perceived to be valuable, no matter what the item was. It's got nothing to do with what's inside. The Gutenberg Bible is written in Latin. So what is so important to people about a bunch of religious books Let's have a look then at the Bible, because you see, in the past, there are hundreds, if not, well, actually, there are thousands of people who have lost their lives because of the Bible, for the sake of the Bible. Now, let's have a look at the Bible. The Bible was written in two particular languages. It was, the Old Testament was in Hebrew. There was also sections of it that are in Aramaic, a related language, but it, mostly it's in Hebrew. 
Why was that? Why was it written in Hebrew? Because it was written for the Hebrew people. The people of Israel. Anyone from outside of Israel who wanted to know the God of Israel had to, be, had to come and be taught by Israelites. Is some of the, the, the Semitic people, as I mentioned, Aramaic was very close to, to Hebrew, so they could pick up the language, perhaps. But even Hebrews, Israelites, did not have copies of the Old Testament. They were left in the hands of the Levites. It was a time when society was what learned through listening. It was an oral society. Israelites themselves learned large parts of the Torah off by heart. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek. It wasn't the highfalutin Greek of the academics which had all sorts of different rules governing how it was spoken and, and written. No, it was the Koine Greek, that is the common Greek, the Greek of everyday language. Now, I wonder why that was. The Greek language was, in fact, the international language of those times. And in fact, there was a Greek Old Testament written called the Septuagint that was prevalent at the time that the, of the New Testament, the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostles. Now, why was this? All of a sudden, the Bible is being made open so that anyone could hear it and read it and understand it. Why was it that this was done? You see, the apostles were told, go ye out unto all the world and preach the gospel to everyone and anyone. Whosoever believeth and is baptized shall be saved. It's a matter of life that believes in these words, in this book. Not only that, these apostles were to go out to all nations, all nations who spoke in different languages. Well, guess what? The apostles were given certain miraculous gifts in order to, to back up what they were saying and to testify that God was certainly with them. Miraculous um, gifts that they were given, one of which was to be able to speak in tongues, as it's called. Now, it's not the gibberish that you see uh, and hear of in some churches. They actually spoke in foreign languages. They spoke in the language of those among whom they went. So not only were these uneducated fishermen able to speak in all sorts of foreign languages, a miracle from God, but the people could each hear in their own tongue and understand what they were saying. Nevertheless, not only was the way made easier for the gospel to go from country to country because God sent forth the gospel or the Lord Jesus Christ sent his apostles forth to preach the gospel at a time when Rome dominated the world, it was a part of the Roman Empire, and all roads led to Rome. There were Roman roads everywhere. The gospel could go out. In other words, God wanted 
people to hear his word because it was a matter of life and a matter of death. As time went by, Rome asserted its dominance over the world and its officials and academics, rather than using the international language of Greek, they started using their own language, that of Latin. It became the dominant international language of a sort. It was only among officialdom, the courts, and academics, and the church. So believers around the world at this time translated the Bible into many different languages. It's been suggested that there were at, at something like 500 different languages that the New Testament and, and the Bible had been translated into by AD 400. But by AD 500, there was just one, one translation, and that was Latin, the language of Rome. All others had been confiscated and burned. And the situation was basically to remain that way for a thousand years. What's called the Middle or the Dark Ages. Why is it called the Dark Ages? Because people were being kept in the dark. Learning was stultified. Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire. It, it was also the language of the Pope and his empire. And when military Rome was overrun, this language lived on in the church. And because of, of the length of time, its usage and, and politics, it made this language of Latin seem sacred, invincible, untouchable. Wycliffe and his Oxford scholars challenged that when he came to write his book in, uh, in English. And so did several others, but Rome was wealthy, was powerful. Because its tentacles reached into every part of society from palaces to pigsties. And it had a monopoly on eternal life. Now, I'm going to cite from, I hope that this is, yes, it is, from a... Um, a well-known author called Melvin Bragg. Um, he is an expert in, in uh, languages, particularly in English, and he's also an expert in, in the Bible, particularly in the authorised version of the Bible. This is called The Book of Books. It's from a book called The Book of Books. And this is what he said about the situation. Eternal life was the deep and guiding passion of this time. The Vatican said you could only gain everlasting life, the majestic promise of the Christian church, if you did what the church told you to do. Now, I'm going to try my screen is I can't get rid of okay I'm hoping that um, it, it's being covered up part of the words are being covered up 
it continues there. That obedience included forced attendance at church and the payment of taxes to support battalions of clergy and accepting that the Bible had to be in Latin and not in your own tongue. Eternal life is bound up in the church and if you wanted it, you had to accept the Latin. Well, as we've mentioned, as in, in our day, not too many people understood Latin in those days. Not the common people, only the academics. Now, language can be used as a means of control by those who use and abuse their omnipotence. The medieval church wanted to impose its omnipotence the world over. Pope Damasus in AD 382 commissioned Jerome to write an official version of the scriptures, to translate a, 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 an official version. Of course, it was Latin, and it's called the Latin Vulgate. This was the official Bible of the church ever since 382 AD. Its antiquity made it hard to challenge its, its, uh, its power and its place in the church. It lasted so long. And because it had, of itself was proof that this was true, according to their thinking. Their the, the proof was absolute, but it was also good commerce. You see, what they did was they traded in people's souls. They were selling safe passages to heaven. They dealt in relics. They monetized miracles. And the church, because of all of these things, grew more and more fat. And they saw where they could gain more. They got fat on it all. And Latin padlocked the faith which underpinned this whole edifice of money-making and wealth. The longer it lasted, the, the, the more inviolable the Latin became. As I say, very few could read or speak it. Every, even in the clergy, there were those that were not that good at it. In the 14th century, a bishop of Gloucester did a survey of 311 deacons and archdeacons and priests in his, his diocese. He found that 168 could not remember the Ten Commandments. And 40 could not say the Lord's Prayer. But they didn't even really mind because, well, the less that could look into these scriptures, the better. Why did they do that? Surely they wanted people to understand the word of God. No, because of the power that they had. It was the dark ages. They protected the Vulgate for it protected them. The language of God was sacred and the sacred became secret and the secret spawned ignorance and ignorance spawned fear. 
And so they developed all sorts of doctrines that cannot be proved from the Bible. They terrorize people with ideas of a devil. They control people's entry into heaven. They control people's life for the forgiveness of their sins had to come through the church and through its clergy. So it was really a tyranny. Now, with the church services in Latin, how did anyone get any idea at all about God? People were fearful of God. People wanted to know about God. They wanted to do the right things. But in actual fact, the way the church had it and the, the corruption, the immorality, of their own examples actually blinded men from what God really wanted them to know. How did anyone get any idea about God at all? Well, one thing they had was what's called mystery plays. It was the only way that the lay or common folk could actually learn anything about the Bible in their own tongue. But it was outside of the church. These mystery plays were held all around Europe, but the most famous were those in Britain, were pro probably because they're the, the most that, uh, that we know about, perhaps. They were held throughout Europe as well, but there's one in particular at York, and, and it, these were traditionally held on the Feast of Corpus Christi, a feast that was known as the Solemnity of the Most Holy Body and Blood of Christ, celebrating the real presence of the body and blood, soul and divinity, of Jesus Christ in the elements of the Eucharist. In other words, a celebration of what they termed a miracle of transubstantiation, transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the literal body of Christ when a person took of it. That's what they claimed. And that's what this feast was about. And that's when they had these plays. Now, these plays were organized by guilds. There were the, the tanners and the plasterers, the card makers, the fullers, the, the coopers, and, and so on. And they all had a part to play. And I, I don't have time to, to go through all of this. They all had a certain section of, as in the York uh, plays, there were 48, 48 different sections. Now, in this, this picture that we have on our screen, it's on a, on a stage. They actually ended up going on carts, and they, the carts would travel around uh, in, in, uh, in a parade to 12 different stations, and there they would perform. Now, these plays were the story of basically the story of the Bible, certain events out of the Bible, but they contained certain doctrines as well, such as the assumption and coronation of the Virgin, the death of Mary, the appearance of Mary to Thomas, all of which are not in the Bible but it's claimed to be out of the Bible. So you can see from this, this was the only way. These were great days of festivity 
and a time when people flocked to so that they could, well, not only receive entertainment, but this is the only learning that they had in their own language. Well, there was a group of people who sought more. They were called the, the Waldenses or the Vaudois in France. They were called this because of a man called Peter Waldo, who is attributed with founding this group. However, their own literature shows that they existed quite a while before Peter Waldo. And, and the thing is that these people somehow had Bibles. There's all sorts of speculation as to where they got them from. Their literature indicates that the valleys in which these people lived in, in the Piedmont, northwest um, of Italy, those valleys were also called Walda or Vaudois. The, the term also applies to the group and to their buildings and also to Peter Walder. It, it's even thought that his name, this man that we know as Peter Waldo, that his name Peter was given to them as their, their leader from Peter the Apostle, and there's a good reason for that. You see, Peter Waldo was a wealthy young merchant from Lyon in, in France. And he had this kind of Damas Damascus moment in AD 1173. He read the scriptures, which obviously is proof that he had access through this group to Bibles. And I'd like you to come with me to Mark chapter 10. Now, this, uh, I know that we read, uh, the reading was from Matthew, but we're going to read the same incident from Mark chapter 10. It's a story about a rich young man like Peter Walder. And he came to Christ. In fact, one of the Gospels says that he ran to him. Oh, here it is here in Mark chapter 10. And when he was gone forth in the way, into the way, in verse 17, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This man wanted to know how he could have eternal life. It was really important to him. Well, the church in Peter Waldo's day said eternal life is bound up in the church and it's locked up in Latin. Well, this rich young man came to Jesus and asked him, what? Must I do? And, and the Lord Jesus Christ said to him in verse 18, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. So what was his answer? Well, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he quotes from the Ten Commandments. And the young man said unto him, Master, all those things I've observed from my youth. Here was a very earnest, rich young man. Now, this is the verse that struck Peter Walder. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Why? Because he was so earnest. He really meant this. And said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross, and follow me. 
Unfortunately for this rich young man, in verse 22, it says, and he was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved for he had great possessions. He was grieved because for the first time he could see what the word of God really was saying. And Christ had pointed, pointed out to him what he was missing. What does he need to do? Well, here it is. He thought he was keeping God's commandments. But he realized he wasn't looking at the intent of those commandments. And for the first time, Peter Waldo saw that too. On hearing these words, he took them literally. He did exactly what Christ told that rich young man of his time to do. He sold up everything. And he went and preached the gospel. Now this Peter Waldo believed that people ought to have the opportunity to hear and understand the word of God in their own language. He saw the import and the importance of that. And so he employed a, a, a Bernard Yidras or Idras and Stephen of Ansa to translate several books of the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into his local French um, dialect. And when the translation was presented in Rome, he sought permission. It actually received words of approval from the Pope. And so being encouraged by the positive response, Waldo hoped that this effort would renew the whole church. Now, the thing was, is that it was a translation from the Latin Vulgate. And we'll see the problem with that soon. In, in actual fact, the Waldensians had produced four Bibles and they had, uh, they had translated them. They had a Greek, they had Waldensian uh, vernacular, a French and an Italian versions. So somehow they managed to do it, but it was very surreptitiously. Waldo had some kind of permission from the Pope to use it, but not what he did with it. And as soon as the Pope realized the consequences, it had devastating effect. Because, you see, they went out by twos. You see, they followed the scriptures literally. And they went out and preached in their own tongue the gospel. And the church realized, we've made a bad mistake here. And they decreed and they persecuted. They wiped out hundreds and thousands of these people who had learned the gospel through these people. And they continued, but they were persecuted for centuries. Waldo himself was expelled from his city. And they all had to, 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 to move into remote areas and lived in these valleys. And they were persecuted. And in an actual fact, there were crusades conducted against Waldensians, massacred. Whole towns were massacred because they'd all converted to, to this Waldensian faith. And these, this literal understanding of the Bible, they became a, a very much persecuted people for a very long time. But others wanted eternal life too. And 
in our language, the English, English language, in Britain, right from the start, there was heavy criticism of the very idea of a translation of the Bible into English. One uh, chronicler complained that the pearl of the gospel is scattered abroad and trodden under foot of swine. In 1382, a man by the name of Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, translated the Latin Vulgate, just like uh, Waldo, but this time into English. And immediately it had problems. It For the first time, people could read in the English language in Britain. It was the fortress Latin had been broken down, but there were problems. What, what um, Wycliffe did was he um, sent out the book by a group called Lollards, or Lollardy, as it's officially known as. And they were a group of people that lived in forests, away from, in, in uninhabited places, in safe houses. And their mission was to give people access to the word of God in English. The authorities in 1382 called Wycliffe to a meeting, a, a, a synod of bishops. It was a show trial. Wycliffe was condemned for heresy. His Bibles were outlawed. Anyone caught with a copy was to be tortured and killed. But the Lollards persisted. Many of them lost their lives. Why? Because they believed that people should hear the word of God in their own language. They believed in it. Do you know, Wycliffe himself died of natural means, natural causes. But 40 years later, Wycliffe's bones were dug up and burned and thrown into the River Swift. Why? Because they wanted to, to destroy his immortal soul as they understood it. So that at the resurrection, there's nobody to rise to join his soul. So it couldn't go into heaven. Such was the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. But the Lollards continued despite all of this. Now, there was other, a, a spirit of change in the year. The Renaissance was, you know, had spawned a resurgence in learning and invention. And God was fanning the flames. Two events changed the course of history and unblocked that vice-like grip of the church and Latin over people's lives. They were, those two things were the printing press and the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium as it was called. The printing press, Gutenberg's press, around 1450, 1440 to 1450. Both of these things occur within a few years of each other, and they had a, a massive effect upon society and the furtherance of the gospel into being printed in the vernacular or the language of each uh, of people's tongues. The printing press, the, the Gutenberg Bible, here it is, 
was the first book ever printed on that printing press. And it's a beautiful book. I, I, I don't know that it's worth millions. Uh, it was in Latin. But it is a beautifully um, tight and uh, produced book. For the first time, though, instead of expensive hand printing and handwritten documents, mostly controlled by the church, who were the academics and so on, now you could have mass printing. And printing presses just spread like wildfire throughout Europe. It was now in the hands of the people, not controlled by the church. As for the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Ottomans overthrew the Eastern Roman Empire with its capital at Constantinople or Byzantium. It was overthrown by these Ottomans. And what that meant was a huge migration of intellectuals from the Greek Orthodox world. And they brought with them their Greek manuscripts, including those of the Bible. There are a lot of philosophers as well, but um, philosophical um, writings, but it included the texts of the New Testament. Well, at the same time, there was this famous scholar in Rotterdam called Erasmus. He was incredible, his learning. But what he did was he translated the... the Bible for the first time, he, he wrote a copy of the Greek text of the New Testament. He pulled together all these various manuscripts and he wrote a Greek text. And he highlighted a lot of problems with the Vulgate. Now, I see my time is, is, um, is almost up, so I'm going to um, have to um, try and truncate this. He highlighted that there were many issues with the, the Latin. For example, in Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 to 2, the Vulgate says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, do penance for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. That's not what the Greek shows, though, Erasmus pointed out. What the, what the, the Greek shows is that they are to repent. That's something personal. Is not going out to do penance, which was controlled by the church. And he highlighted a whole lot of other things. And it really highlighted the fact that the church was controlling people's understanding of the word of God. All of a sudden, the world was a different place. Martin Luther came along and he too, had had his Damascus experience, but he, he learned from Erasmus. So he decided to write his own version or trans, uh, translation of the Bible into German. And then all of a sudden, others, other translations came about. And then came when William Tyndale in Britain. He was a brilliant scholar. He went to Oxford University at 12. He was accomplished in eight different languages. And more than anything, he wanted to write a Bible 
and English. It was too hot for him to do that in Britain. So he moved from Britain over to Europe where he could find safe houses and places that were Protestant and their leanings. And he wrote his, his New Testament, uh, which was complete in 1525, but it was um, uh, the, it was the place where the printer was, was raided. However, Tyndale had got tipped off, and so he managed to grab hold of his manuscripts, and he had to start the process again. And in 1526, his New Testament, a beautiful edition of the New Testament, was, was um, finally printed and disseminated throughout uh, Britain. He then tried to, he moved on to the Old Testament, but he didn't know Hebrew, so he learnt it. It's quite incredible, this, this man. And basically, this man was the shaper of modern English. He unified the language and he shaped English, but he did more than that. He provided the word of God close to the original in a, in a very good translation that opened up the word of God for people to understand God's message. It was no longer locked. Unfortunately, he, he was betrayed. He lost his life. He was burnt at the stake. He was first strangled because he was an academic, apparently. And then his body was burned. And finally, and when he was at, at the stake, his final words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And within four years, there were four different English translations in Britain, all of them based on William Tyndale's version. Not only that, Anne Boleyn, who lost her life in the same year as Tyndale, kept a copy of Tyndale's Bible, New Testament, alongside her bed. And there were hundreds of others who took up this cause, who lost their lives because of the Bible. I, haven't, I had a list here of, of people that we could have briefly mentioned, but I've run out of time. I, I want to conclude with this, this, this question, though, that why would anyone give up their life for the Bible, especially in their own tongue? I, I want to take you just to two passages. First of all, John chapter 6. John 6, the Lord Jesus Christ had spoken to a large crowd of people that came to him, really seeking miracles, but he spoke to them in such a way they could not understand what he was going on about, and many of them walked away. In, in verse 67, he turned to the disciples It says in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And Christ himself had already said that. He has the words of eternal life. He said in verse 63, it is the spirit that quickens or makes alive. 
the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. In other words, the words that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke are words that give life. Within the Bible, there, there is something about the Bible. And the words that it speaks, that it enables us to have life. So that in 2nd of Timothy in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul said, and I'll just read this out to you because I, I, I want to um, just to, to point out the fact of what the word of God does for a person. It says there of the word of God, uh, sorry, in chapter 3, the second of Timothy, chapter 3, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. In other words, God's word reaches into a person's life. It tells us the way we ought to live in a way that God is pleased with. So that, he says in verse 17, the man of God may be perfect, complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This word helps a person to live a life that is acceptable to God. I want to conclude in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, is a parable, and in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. Now that treasure hid in a field is the word of God. That's the context of this whole chapter. He, it's the 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 chapter of the sower and the seed, and the seed is the word of the kingdom, it says. The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure. It's hidden. The which when a man hath found it, he hides it, and for joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. There is nothing in this life that is worth anything like the word of God. It's that much of a treasure, says the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 45, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchantman seeking goodly pearls, who when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. He does exactly the same thing. He sells all his worldly goods, just like what Christ had told that rich young man. Because that rich young man, his life was in his goods, in this life. The Bible tells us about a life that's to do with God. It's a treasure. It's a pearl of great price. That's why it's worth understanding and worth dying for. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. 
don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.